Acts chapter 6. Normally we start off with something funny, but I'm going to start off with something serious here today. We are on Thanksgiving weekend. When you all went to school, we were taught, I was taught the Thanksgiving story. What the, what the kids are being taught today is not the Thanksgiving story. They are being taught other things in school. Relate some of this to some people. For some folks, it's new. But other people, I think, that were in school a long enough time ago, when God was allowed there, got to hear the other story of what Thanksgiving is about. Sometimes it's been perverted, and we think, or people are trying to teach today, that Thanksgiving is about the pilgrims giving thanks to the Indians for the help that they gave them. The pilgrims did not give thanks to the Indians on Thanksgiving Day. The pilgrims gave thanks to God. Some people think that the pilgrims came over and didn't know what they were doing and almost starved to death. Let me ask you a question. You folks who, how many of you folks have never been camping? Never been camping? Would you folks, if I said this weekend we are going to go rough it, a tent and a sleeping bag, no food, you got to kill your own food. How many of you are coming that have not been there before? That have never done it? How in the world are you going to get on the ship and sail across the ocean to come to a land where there are no stores, there are no houses, if you've never been camping before? If you've never done anything? Don't you think that people who got on that boat felt like they could handle themselves? That they weren't helpless people? If you were a helpless person, would you have made that trip? Come on, you won't even go camping if you haven't been out there. The pilgrims came on over. And what is sometimes forgotten, and certainly in schools today it is forgotten, is that William Bradford, who was the governor, organized the, the, the people. And what they did was it was their first shot, first test at socialism, centuries before Karl Marx. And what they did was they gave everyone a plot of land. And everyone was to farm it and everyone brought it into the single till. And then as you had need, you took out of the single till. And that's how it went. And they almost died. Because those who were non-producers had no motivation to produce. And those who were overproducers had no motivation to overproduce. And they almost died. And if you go back and you read his journals you will find some of the best stuff written of why socialism doesn't work. And so he started a new experiment and he said, you have a plot of land. What you raise is what you eat. What you raise is your own. Whatever you get, you can do with whatever you want. It is yours. And then the colony took off. And they had more than enough. More than they needed. And in that abundance, they set up the day of thanksgiving to God for blessing them with abundance of provisions. And they went on to survive and went on to, to do good things, but they realized that with what you're given, you need to be faithful with it. And as faithful as you are with what you are given determines where you will go. This is Thanksgiving weekend. Don't let anybody tell you that Thanksgiving was anything different. The Indians did not save the pilgrims. The pilgrims saved themselves. They learned. They listened. They patterned themselves after the things in the Old Testament. And they tried that as an experiment and found out it didn't work. It doesn't work in, in nations and it won't work for you. God is not a socialist. 
He does not give everyone equal rewards. He gives you rewards based on what you do. So be faithful. And that's why we've been in on this series. Learning what it is to be faithful. Now all you folks, most of you came back from last week. I appreciate that. A couple of you told me personally you love me. Appreciate that too. Made note of those of you who didn't. No, you know I didn't do that. <laughs> but the last time we looked at uh, Stephen in the book of Acts and how they went out to find, to seek out from among you, they said, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So this is what they set out to find. person of good reputation, this is someone who, when you give them something, they're going to get it done. This is something when they say they're going to do something, they do it. This is someone who's when they say, this is who I am, this is how I do, that's what they are. They're a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Put everything into it. Stop waiting for people to give you something to do. Find something to do. Look for it. There's things around. So what if it's not as prominent as you want? Find something to do. Get yourself busy and show yourself faithful with what you've got. And you'll get promoted. You'll get, it works on the job too. This is why Christians are supposed to be abundantly prosperous. They're not sitting around waiting for things to happen. They're not sitting around not working hard. They're giving it their all. They're the hardest working people on the job. When you follow after God's principles is what's going to happen. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. With all your might. So they'll take this stuff on and they'll be faithful with it. My faithfulness, we said last week, my faithfulness follows my vision of how spectacular and necessary my ministry is. How spectacular and how necessary do you see what you're doing is? And I don't care what it is you're doing. We gave you the story Brother Keith told about the man who cleaned the restrooms. Took pride in it. Asked him. Asked him. Did you see the restroom? How was it? Spotless. That's my job. He saw it as important. Well, how important is cleaning the restrooms? Find out how important it is to a visitor who goes into the restrooms and finds them dirty. What's your response to a restaurant that you go into and the restroom is dirty? How important is it? How important is it that the floors are picked up? How important is it that the parking lot's clean? How important are these things? How important is it that you greet it with a friendly face? Stop putting down what it is that you do. Look at what you do as vital. You ought to, this is not prideful, folks, but you ought to think they can't get along without me. They don't have that attitude. Just think that. Just admit it. They need me here. Look at what I'm doing. I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm getting this going. You ought to see yourself as indispensable. But understand you can be replaced tomorrow. <laughs> you got you to gotta get that mix in there. But you, whatever it is that you do, you look at that, this is the most important thing because I'm doing it. Whatever it is. And you can keep it that way. Well, I just stay home and pray. Oh, well, all right. I guess that's not too important. 
you lose how spectacular and how magnificent what it is that you do is, you'll stop applying yourself. You stop putting everything out in it. Because it's not important. And the more you neglect it, the need for it goes away. You've got a restaurant and they don't keep the restaurants clean and people stop coming, doesn't the need for clean restaurants go, restrooms go away? Not as many people first off to dirty it up and pretty soon the doors aren't even open. Give whatever it is that you do full attention. Now we didn't get as far as this last time but we put this in your outline. Most people who claim to be burned out have simply lost the magnificence of what they do in church. They've simply lost the magnificence of it. I don't see it as all that great. I'm just showing up, going through the motions. And then people pick on you. How many of y'all know whatever it is you do for God, people will pick on it. People will find something wrong. People will say, well, it's not this. and it's not. People will pick on you. Just get used to it. They're going to do it. Just know you can come out of there having done the best, best job you've ever done what you do. And then somebody has a negative thing to say. It can just deflate you if you rely on that. Don't. Just keep the magnificence up of what it is that you, that you do. And besides, who do you do it for? Wait, wait to hear what God has to say about it. Don't keep listening to other people. Now, take what they say. You know, you can sometimes learn things. Well, I meant to do it this way, but apparently it didn't come across like that, so i got to change that up a little bit. Well, what are the results of leaving a ministry or function due to burnout? Or blaming God for leading me in another direction. Don't you love that? Well, God just has me going in another direction right now. When all it really was was a lack of motivation on your part. You didn't keep the vision. You didn't maintain the vision. And stop blaming other people for not maintaining the vision for you. You maintain it. You get before God. You do what you do for God. You're faithful because of God. You're faithful in the pattern of God. So you get before God and you keep reminding yourself in His presence, how is it that you're faithful? What is it that motivates you? What am I supposed to accomplish with this? How, what is the effect? What do you want me to do in this area? And you get that motivation from Him. Who does Moses get motivation from? Does he go to the people? Is he going to get motivation from the Israelites? Who's he get motivation from? He's got to go to God. Elisha got discouraged. Where'd he go for motivation? He didn't have any people. He thought he was the only one. He had to go to God. Learn to go to God to get built back up again. Stop just giving out the burnout. Well, I'm just tired of that. I'm just burned out. I'm just whatever. No, get out there. Drive yourself. Father God, I, I'm losing the importance of what it is that I'm doing. I'm losing the fact that this, what I do, it can be magnificent. This, this can be great. Help me to restore that. What if you want, what if what you do only ministers to ten people? Glory to God. Ministers of ten people. Be faithful with what? Be faithful with thousands and God will give you millions. Be faithful with hundreds and God will give you thousands. Be faithful with few and God will give you more. Well, how long do I be faithful with few? Don't ask God about time. I mean, Joseph, how long was he faithful? Quite a few years. Before he finally got promoted up to where he's supposed to be. What happens if he just bails out? Says, well, just forget this. I'm not going to keep pushing. 
he wouldn't learn what he needed to learn, he wouldn't have been ready for what he was supposed to be doing. Kevin was telling us here this morning, be prepared. Be ready. Always be prepared every day to take that ministry, that thing you do, to a higher level. Don't ever think you've reached it. Don't ever think, well, I'm the best at what I do. Or at least I'm the best of anyone I know. Or at least I'm the best of those around. Or I'm the best of whoever they have. So what? So what? If you play an instrument, can you play that instrument better? Stop comparing yourself to what they have. If you sing, how well do you sing? If you usher, how well do you usher? If you do computers and sound stuff, how well is that? How good is that? If you minister, if you teach, counsel, pray over people, how good is it? Can it be better? Stop comparing yourself to the people around you. Compare yourself to God. God, how do you, what do you want me to be? How do you want me to get there? Whatever you do, folks, is going to take some work. It's going to take some effort. How many of you got yourself up a little bit earlier this week? Get yourself ready. Get yourself prepared. Hope so. You ought to. Get yourself ready. If you're due at church at 9 o'clock, be here at 8.45. You're due at church at 9.30, be here at 9.15. If you're due here at 7 o'clock, get here at 5. Making sure you're all still there. I mean, if you're here to be free for a ministry, don't just squeeze in. Now, for some of you, just squeezing in is a step up. Hello. If there's no demand on you here on Sunday, get one. Stop sitting around. Get a demand. Find something to get a demand on. Well, now I done did it. <laughs> if you're going to be faithful, if you're going to become developed in faithfulness, you must have something to be faithful in. You've got to have something to be faithful in. You got to be faithful with it. Now we looked. We spent a couple of weeks on Joshua, and Joshua was told a couple of things: be strong and. Be strong and of good courage. We saw that a lot of people were commanded that. Be strong and of good courage. And the reason he was being told to be strong and of good courage was because he would be distracted? No. Because he said it was, the Word of God says, do not turn to the right or to the left. Which means something would be straight ahead where you're supposed to go and would make you not want to go through so his strong and being courageous was against fear. Was against things that would come against him. And then we looked at what he did in Ai. At Ai, they all they went out in the battle and a few of them died. 36 of them died. And what does he do? He becomes fearful. And begins to complain to God and he gets before God and he starts you know, telling them all the things that God should have done that he didn't do and so forth. And what's God say? Get up! God's not even patient with them. He's like, this is not the time. What are you doing down on your knees praying? Folks, there are some things you will face that is not the time to pray. Get up and get busy. That's what God says to him. Get up! What are you doing being in fear? What are you not? Why are you not walking in strength and courage? Because he told him how many times in that one command? Three times. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and of good courage. And be strong and of good courage. Three times he said that to him. And he goes into Jericho and they win. It's easy to be strong and courageous when you win, isn't it? 
But then he gets the AI and he loses. And it's... Now he also said not only be strong and be very courageous, but he also said do not fear or be... Do not fear or be dismayed. Do not feel, well, I guess maybe I'm not going in the right way. Well, I guess I, that's not for me. I guess I must have misunderstood. Don't be dismayed. What God said you will do. Whatever it is that you've taken charge of, whatever it is you're going to do, whatever it is that you have said, I will get that done. Stop looking at your life and the excuses your life holds for why you can't do it. Quit it. You are not walking in faithfulness. Now, I'm not just preaching you and I. I've got to make sure I do it myself. I can let life hold me back, steer me in a different direction. People can dismay your vision, but God brightens and renews it. But people can dismay your vision. They bring fear and dismay into your life. They bring bad reports. They bring dissatisfaction. They're not happy with you. They don't like you. They reject you. They bring dismay into what you're doing. People can dismay your vision, but God brightens and renews it. Get in the face of God. If you get in the face of God each day, walk with Him, Get just brighten that up. Some days you might have time get before you go to work, get down on your knees, just pray. Sometimes you're walking around praising God. Sometimes just even on the way to work. Just praise and glorify Him. A whole lot better than some other stuff you can be listening to on the way to work. You also still have that KYW on the news on the station, do you? Horrible stuff. Get it out. No, God brightens and renews it. God's like, think of it this way. When you go in the grocery store next time and you're walking on down the aisle, God's like Clorox too. He brightens and renews. Brightens and renews. Better than just laundry detergent alone. He brightens and renews. Get on in there and get some Clorox too added. Get it brightened up. People come in, they dull you. They make you dull. Colors get dull and, and not so good. Y'all know I like colors. I now, in my wardrobe at home, I do not own a single white shirt. Gave my one shirt. I had one, told you before I had one white shirt. It's gone. I gave it away. I wasn't wearing it, didn't wear it for like two years. Figured no sense in me having it in there. Gave it away. I don't like white shirts. I like color. I fear I'm not wearing them. Somebody else might. Gave it away. Brightens and renews. So you get dirt in there and dull those things up. That's not good. You want to have that thing brightened. Now, especially if you're picky like me. See, I don't just have a, a yellow or a gold shirt or a green shirt. I have 10 shades of green. I have 12 shades of blue. I have 5 shades of yellow. Four shades of red. Three shades of orange. One shade of black. I know every one of my shirts. If one turns up missing, folks, I know it's gone. I know it's gone. It's Where's it at? I know it's gone. I can sit over. I know my shirt so I know my color so well. I sit over on my tie rack and look at a tie. Figure, this one will work. And walk that tie over, have the shade match perfectly. I can do it so well. I can go into the store. I can pull out a tie without the shirt being there, without the suit being there, and match it all up, bring it home, and it works absolutely perfect. That's just, that's my superpower. 
I'm the color man. <laughs> but you see, if you eat those, you do all that work to get all these different shades, different colors, and you get them dirty, that's not good. See, I take care of my shirts. My shirts do not get washed with anything else. My shirts get washed with shirts. They don't get washed with jeans. They don't get washed with towels. They don't get washed with undershirts. They don't get washed with any kind of t-shirt at all. My shirts get washed with other shirts. That's it. <laughs> now, I do the same thing for my wife's stuff. My wife's, her sweaters and stuff, they don't get washed with the towels and the other shirts. My wife's sweaters deserve good treatment. <laughs> and I wash my wife's sweaters by themselves. And I make sure, you know, if we've got a red sweater in there, it's not going in there with the beige one. Not doing that. Yeah, see, she doesn't do the wash. She's not as picky as I am. She would let my white shirts go in with a t-shirt. I won't do it. In fact, I don't even put my shirts. Don't even go in the laundry with the rest of the clothes. They have their own spot. They do not touch the other clothes. They are waiting for their wash to come. And when the time comes, I'll wash them all together. All right, too much detail on that. Clorox 2. Think about that. Brightens things up. Because just like clothes can get dulled by dirt and stuff, so can your vision. So can the magnificence of what you do. And you need to go out there and get some Clorox 2. Not it in. Get before the Father God and say, Father God, I need to renew and brighten my vision. I need to renew and brighten it. Renew and brighten it. See, folks, we get dismayed in our vision because we're not focusing on the first thing here. What does God want? We lose focus of what does God want. When you have a vision, when you have a, when God has put a job in your hands, whether you're an usher, whether you're a greeter, whether you're a computer person, a sound person, a worship person, a teacher, whatever it might be that you do, and God has put that in your hands, what does God want out of this? Now, if you all are sitting there saying, I put too much time into my shirts, how much time are you putting into your ministry? Because I'll tell you what, I put a whole lot more into God's things than I do into mine. How much time are you putting in that ministry? Well, the computer's not that important. Sound's not that big a deal. Greeters could slip a week. No, they can't. You gotta be, if you are not faithful with the little that you've got, how can God give you more? How can God do it? I gotta first off find out what God, what do you want out of this? What is it that you want? Not what do those around me need, or what do those around me need, yes. What, what is it those around me need? Not what do those around me want. It's what do those around me need, not what do the people want. We're too much focused on what the people want. How many times have you been in the ministry, whatever it is that you were doing, and somebody came up and expressed to you dissatisfaction and it bothered you because you got focused on this, I am not doing what the people... You forget it already? Want. I'm not here, I'm not here to focus on what the people want. I am here to focus on what they need and what God says He wants.
The only wants I need to focus on are what God says. The only needs I need to focus on are what God says the people have. Stop focusing on what people want. I mean, we, we can get in here. Brother Naz, Brother Kevin, can get up there and teach you on... Well, they've been teaching some good stuff there in that, uh, that offering part. They can get up there and they can teach something. God before God and God says, do this. And they say that, they do that, and somebody comes up and says, that didn't bless me at all. I don't know why you're messing with that. I got nothing out of it. Then what can happen to you? You can become dulled. You become dismayed. Get a little of that stuff mixed into the fabric. It dullens the color of it. Because shades are important, folks. Don't you know that? I've told you the story before about shades. I hunt for shades. I told you, I looked for a year for the right shade of purple I wanted. And when I came into the store and they had it, my kids were, Dad, Dad, they got the purple. No, it's the wrong one. It's not the right one. Don't like that one. Shades are important. And people can come in and when they add stuff to you, they shade what you do. And you become a little less intense. You become a little more people-minded. And you become less faithful with what God wants less faithful with what people need and more attentive to what people want. Hello? What does God want? This is what you got to focus on. Stephen was faithful with what he had to do. Whatever it was that went in his hand, he was faithful with it. And so they determined he was faithful. He was a man of good reputation. And they gave him something extra. Something that was so important that if it didn't get done, the apostles were going to come down there and do it. And so he focused on that. But not only did he focus on that, but he was still out there ministering. And the Word of God said great miracles were done. Great miracles were done by the hand of Stephen. Signs and wonders. Things going on. They got mad at him and of course they killed him. Paul was right there watching this thing. Seeing all that that went on. So let's get over to Acts chapter 9. That's all we covered last week. We didn't quite get as far as we wanted to in it. But in Acts chapter 9. Actually, let's go back to chapter 8 first. Verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, speaking of Stephen, at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lament over him. And for as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Is Paul faithful? Yes, he is. Paul is a faithful man. Now, I didn't ask he was faithful to the right thing. I didn't ask if he was faithful to God, but he is a faithful person. Whatever Paul set his mind to do, he was faithful to that task. And he viewed the Christians. He was not against God. He viewed the Christians as coming against God. So he was faithful in defending his God against what he saw as an intrusion, a corruption. And he was very faithful to it. He was not about to be deterred. And he got more and more intense in it and wreaked havoc in the church. This is the man who put everything into it. He kept visioning, how can I kill more Christians? How can I wreak more havoc in the church? 
And he came up with ways. And he did it. He's a faithful man. So God goes and He finds a faithful man, but he doesn't, He's not faithful to the right things. He's going to divert him into another spot. Remember, the Word of God said in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 6, that many, I'm paraphrasing, many people think they are right, faithful, all the different translations we had of the thing. Many people think they're good. Many people think that they are faithful, that they're trustworthy. But God says that they are few and far in between. That there aren't many of them. So we have to make sure we are faithful by the way God sees it. Not the way we see it. So, Paul is seen as being faithful. Verse 1, chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Understand, he's persecuting Christians. He is a follower of God. The voice does not identify itself as God. What does it identify himself as? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he is defending God and getting rid of this intruder. So the intruder shows up. Well, as far as as Paul is concerned, this guy's dead. He's a dead man. Isn't Jesus a dead man? Didn't he die before Paul? Isn't Paul well aware that Jesus is dead? And so a dead man's got this light all around you. And apparently it's pretty impressive. So he says, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. We are not given all the details of what he was told. But he is told to arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. What does he do? He arises and goes into the city. Does God tell him twice? No. And as far as we know, God pulls him aside in here and we don't know all the things that he told him. We know some of the things, but we don't know all the things that he told him because he's supposed to go into the city and what's it say? You will be told what you must do. We're not really told what he must do. We're told some things about what what was said, but we're not really told all that stuff. But whatever it was that God told him that day about what he must do, does God ever have to renew that? Does God ever have to send somebody? Ananias, go back over to Paul and tell him again what he must do. Does Paul ever say, God, am I supposed, what am I supposed to do now? So God tells Paul this one time, one time here, what he must do, and Paul goes out and spends the rest of his life doing it. That's good. That's being faithful with what you're told to do. Stop waiting to be told and retold. Oh God, if you don't renew the vision in me, I'm just going to get out. I'm just going to drop it. I'm not going to do what you want me to do over at that office anymore. I'm not going to do in the job what you want me to do in the job anymore. I'm not going to do what you want me to do as an usher anymore. I'm not going to do what you want me to do as a wife or a parent or a husband anymore. I've lost the magnificence of that ministry. Lost the magnificence of that vision. 
then unless you renew that vision in me, I'm just going to walk away. Stop blaming God. God told you one time, get out there and do it. should never have to be told again. If you have to be told a second time, are you ready for this one? Probably not, huh? Maybe we ought to just skip it. <laughs> if you have to be told a second time, it was because you were unfaithful with the first one. Isn't that right? Glory to God. You are loving this series, aren't you? This is probably your favorite series we've ever done here. But I'll tell you what, if we can get to this spot, remember where we started. We have not forgotten where we started from. Where we started was where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. And I told you before, if you do not specifically know what treasure awaits you for being faithful in what you in particular do, how can you dare say that your heart is in heaven? If I were to line you up right now and ask you what you would do, and the half of you that could respond say, I know what I'm supposed to do and you're doing it. And then if I hit you with a follow-up question, what is your reward? How many of you could give me an answer? For where your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. It does not say the other way around, folks. You can't get your heart in heaven and have treasure. Where your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you want to know why people get burned down in ministry, folks, it's because they don't know what their treasure is. All they know is what their problems are and their opposition. Isn't it going to help you to know what that treasure is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we're getting there. <laughs> we're still a little ways from it. A whole lot of groundwork we've got to do in ahead of time. But you'll be ready for it when we get there, right? All right. It's important, it is imperative that you understand what your treasure is. And Well, I'm going to be saved. Glory to God. That's not it. You do not get salvation for what you do for Him, what you're faithful with. If that was the case, then you are now believing in works righteousness. How many of you believe in works righteousness? How many of you believe that you're saved because of what you did? Uh-uh. So salvation is off the table. That's not the reward. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. All right. Just wanted to let you know, we haven't forgotten about that. No, we got a lot of interest when we were talking about that. We're, we're going to get there. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. How many days? What was he told to do? Arise and go into the city, and in a day you will be told what you must do. He's not given a time limit on it, is he? Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. And he was three days without sight. Now, you put yourself in Paul's position. You just got blinded by this light on the road. The, the voice says, go into the city, and I will tell you what to do. And you're in the city, you can't see anything, and you're there for one day, and nothing happens. And you're there for two days, and nothing happens. How many of you are complaining? How many of you are losing faithfulness to the thing to do? Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. How many of you were, were him? You're tired of waiting. Let's move on with this thing. But Saul stayed. He was faithful to it. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord seen in a vision. Ananias, and he said to him, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. How many of you want a vision like this? 
How many of you want a vision where God comes to you and tells you the name of the street, the person's house who owns it, and who's inside? How many are ready for it? Alright, good. You are all the people who are going to go confront us all. You are going to confront someone who's ready to kill you. Who has papers to drag you off to prison. And you're going to walk into his presence, identify yourself as one of those believers to a man who has papers to either kill or imprison you. And now we know who we can count on for those things. <laughs> See, you're going to get a vision like Ananias had. You're going to get a responsibility like Ananias had. And in a vision he had seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias said, answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Now I skipped over that, but understand, Paul has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. How many of you want that vision? You got something, how many got something wrong with you physically and you have a vision at nighttime? A man or a woman named so and so is going to come into your house and pray over you. And then here comes a knock at the door. Hi, I'm Ananias. Glory to God. <laughs> See, we'd rather be on the Paul side because that, that was easy. I got the vision. I got the healing. Glory to God. But then he also got the responsibility with the call because God said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias has a problem with this and he says he has authority from the chief priest to blind all. To bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. Bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So he's given, given him a commission to go out to all these, face all these people. But again, great vision came to Saul. Great responsibility also came. Brother Hagin, you should share this with us. That's why I don't pray for visions. Because I know what comes after them. If God gives me a vision, that's fine. But I know what comes after the vision. That's not as fun. Brother Hagin used to always teach us the greater, the greater the opposition, the greater the revelation. Sure has worked out for me. How about you? And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has, as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So see, he didn't see until this guy came. So he was three days. This is probably the fourth day. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Well, Paul was faithful. He waited until he got to, to hear what he was supposed to hear. Then he heard it. And then he was faithful with that. But Paul encountered a lot of problems. There were a whole lot of people who wanted to dull the colors. There were a whole lot of people who wanted to say, don't trust Him. I don't believe Him. Be in fear of Him. Don't let Him in. Get rid of Him. Let's kill Him. Let's get rid of Him now. He's a problem. Isn't this dulling? If you were facing this, wouldn't it dull the vision for you? If God's called you to this thing... Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And now he's here, here with the children of Israel. And what do they want to do? Kill them. Get rid of them. How many of you face that? Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. 
And all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called him the name in Jerusalem? He has come here for the purpose that, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. So he went on from persecuting those who served Jesus to proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how many of you are thinking he's a Trojan horse? He's just there. He's going to get all these Christians around. And once we all get around, he's going to bring in the army. Take us all off. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by the night, let him down through the wall in the large basket. Well, we see that it happens a couple of times. He has to escape death. Has to escape people trying to, to kill him. You all know, if you were there and people kept saying the nasty things about you, like they're saying things about Paul, you'd get discouraged. You'd want to not be faithful to that first word. You'd be back there before God. God, give me a second word. Tell me it again. What'd you say? No, be faithful to the first word. Back with Joshua. When Joshua was told, be strong and of good courage, did God expect to come back and tell him that again? God was upset. Why am I having to go over this with you? Why are you in fear? Why are you not strong? Why are you not courageous? Get up. The reason you can't stand before the army has nothing to do with me. It has to do with you. And you should have assumed that because I told you I would never leave you nor forsake you. That was a promise from God to Joshua as well as the children of Israel. And he faces the first bit of opposition. What's he do? Falls into that. You've got to be careful. You've got to be watchful. Now in this one, God doesn't need to start or ignite faithfulness in Paul. Doesn't need to do it. It's already there. All he needs to do is redirect it. That's all he's got to do. How many of you have a, have now or in the past have had one of those problem child, strong-willed children? And it, it's constantly a, a thing where you're redirecting this will, trying to put it into a positive area, trying to keep it into a good good direction. How many have also parented one of those children who had no will at all? And you're trying to ignite a will into them. You're trying to put some kind of a willpower in it. Will you stand up for something? Will you go after something? Do something. Come on. Yeah, they get older and they go out for a job. How'd it go? I don't know. I left my application, but I don't know how it went. Well, did you do this? Did you do that? Nah, I just, you know, whatever. Whatever. It's No! Be faithful! Go after it! Be diligent. Get get some fire in you. Go after the thing. You gotta have some fire. It is harder to create the fire in a child without it than it is to redirect one who has it. It's harder. It can be done. Glory to God. It can be done. But it is harder. But you're gonna be safe space with one of those things. God does not have to ignite fire in Paul. He's got plenty of it. He's got to redirect it. And so he takes Paul and he redirects it. And Paul takes all that same fire he had before and he just redirects this now with God. He's going to be doing this for the things of God. And not everybody's willing to receive it. Not everyone's willing to take it. But he's going after it. So God just needs to redirect what is already in Paul. It is easier for another to redirect than to create something in me. 
But you can create it. If it's not in you, you can create it, folks. God's giving you that ability. We already said this one. Does God ever ever have to tell Paul again? Not as far as we know. As far as we know, God never had to tell him this again. But I want you to observe something else about this. And that is Paul's posture. If you've been coming out on Wednesdays, you've been getting a full dose, Brother Keith Moore. Reverence and honor. Reverence and glory. Reverence and glory. That's what it is. He's been teaching some things about how we're supposed to be reverent. I want you to notice the posture that Paul has when he comes here before God. While God is revealing, Paul is respectful and reverent. Never does Paul approach God or say anything, or to Jesus, say anything negative to Him. Do you understand that? He does not do it. And this is imperative that we learn this. How many times do you see Moses in a disrespectful mode to God? Paul is not sluggish and sarcastic. How many of y'all know it's easy to fall into that? It's easy to get into sluggishness where I am just slow. Sluggishness will replace obedience if you let it in. If you let sluggishness into your life, it will replace obedience. Now, we've told you before about developing your spirit that if you develop your spirit, you don't need it in a long time. Your spirit can wake you up. But for those who haven't developed your spirit to that point, and I would still use it, I still use an alarm clock as a backup. But when your alarm clock wakes you up, how many of you have, I mean, you used to get up to it all the time and then you begin to become a little sluggish to it and you begin to not wake up right away. In fact, you used to start to set the alarm 10 minutes earlier because you knew you were going to ignore it, hit the snooze button once or twice. And you want to make sure that you still had enough time to hit that, that snooze button a couple of times. Knock it off! You are letting sluggishness in. This is something that you want. But you say, I'm not, gonna, I'm not a morning person. Quit hiding behind that excuse. You need to start. When that alarm gets up, you set that alarm for what time you decide you're going to get up. When it goes off, get up! Don't be sluggish. Get up. Get going. Move around. Now, you don't have to necessarily get out of bed if you, if you, if you want to get up and meditate on God or pray. And you can do that without falling back to sleep. Go ahead. But don't let sluggishness in. If you let sluggishness in, it begins to pervade everything and begins to replace obedience in you. Don't become sluggish. And sarcastic. We talked about sarcasm before in the last series. Not the healing one, the one before that. Remember that? That all went over real well. For some of you, you got a hold of it. But I put this in your outline because I want you to catch hold of this. When sarcasm becomes habitual, this is nothing new. We talked to this in the last the, the series before we got into this. When sarcasm becomes habitual, so does doubt and unbelief. Now, I like sarcastic humor as much as the next guy. And you all know I've cracked some sarcastic jokes and, and stuff like that and, and things, but you have got to be able to turn it off. If you are constantly sarcastic, how many of y'all know, you, you guys especially that, that have this in you, but some of you other people I don't know as well. How many of you, every time that you hear something, you can begin to let that sarcastic voice take over and every time you hear something, sarcasm, 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 sarcasm. What is sarcasm, folks? Sarcasm is really ordained. This is what it does. It casts doubt on what was said or puts it in an unintended light. Isn't that what sarcasm does? That's what makes it funny. It casts doubt on what was said or puts what was said in an unintended light. 
If you habitually practice this, then every, and, and I'll tell you what, there are a few things I do not let sarcasm rise up to me on. One of those things is the Word of God. When I'm listening to people on the, on my, my headset, my MP3 player and stuff like that, I do not let this stuff take over. I make sure of that. But you know, you, you're in a casual conversation and you hear somebody say something, something sarcastic rises up. I'm not saying that if, if it does that, you're on your way to hell. <laughs> All right? Please don't get that idea. And next time you heard somebody be sarcastic, say, oh, you doubt and unbeliever! But if you can never turn it off, then you have put yourself into a lifestyle of doubt and unbelief. Because sarcasm causes doubt. And as soon as you hear something from the Word of God that hasn't lined up in your life, what comes up on you? Sarcasm. You become sarcastic about that thing. And you begin to say things out of your mouth with that. You gotta be careful with it. Be careful with it. Now I've told you before, you know, I, you want to crack jokes with me after the service? That's all fine. I've even told folks, you know, you want to talk sports with me after the service? That's fine. There's a few topics I take, I tell people, don't talk to me about before the service. I really don't care what the Eagles are doing, what the Flyers did last night, what the Phillies did. It doesn't matter to me before the service is going on. I don't care about any of that at all. Don't bother me with it. After the service, you can fill my ear with it all you want to. If you give me some kind of sarcastic humor before service, you're not going to get it. You're going to get a deadpan face because I, I don't give it thought. You ever wonder why I've done that? Because I don't give it thought. I won't let that stuff in. Not then. But you've got to make sure. Now, only you can tell yourself this, but if you are always fighting sarcastic comments, and some of them still get out, but you're always fighting it, then what happens when the Word of God rises up on the inside of you? But Paul is respectful in the presence of God. Does Paul offer one bit of sarcasm or critique about what God said? Paul was successful, wasn't he? He's a guy we ought to follow. When sarcasm becomes habitual, everybody say habitual. That's what we're talking about, habitual sarcasm. So does doubt and unbelief. A rebel changes their posture to those in charge. If you have a rebel, they change their posture. If you can tune into this, you can pick out rebels in a moment. Rebels change their posture. In fact, you can even see it because they'll change their posture from one person to another. You can know for sure that is a rebellious person. You don't have to know much more about them. But if a person is one way with you and another way with another, they are a rebellious person. They're not true. A one of good reputation, folks, does not change. They will be the same. They will stand for the same things. They stand the same way. They don't change those things. Now, I'm not talking about adapting yourself to people and making them more, more comfortable, more at ease. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you change your demeanor. You change what you stand for. You change who you are. You become something different. That's a rebel. Here at the end, we put this in there. Develop a pattern of being told once and doing it repeatedly. Remember you talked before about patterns? Joseph had a pattern. Develop a pattern. Be told something once and do it repeatedly. Get that pattern going on. If God tells you something one time, I will do it and 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 over and over and over and over. Keep going that way. Develop a pattern of being told once and doing it repeatedly instead of being told repeatedly and doing it little. Don't do it that way. 
Don't be told repeatedly and do little. Develop the vision of grandness for whatever your ministry function. And don't depend on others to do this for you. You need to develop it. You need to build up that vision of grandness. People need to say when they talk to you that what you do is the most important thing in the world. Because of the way that you do it. The way that you talk about it. Let it be that way. Develop that picture of grandness or whatever it is that you do. You see that thing and I am going to be the best usher. I'm going to be the best Sunday school teacher. I'm going to be the best computer person. I'm going to be the best in the sound area. I'm going to be the best in the cleanup area. I'm going to be the best in the teaching area. I'm going to be the best in the nursery area. I'm going to be the best in the visitor area. I'm going to be the best in the toddler area. Whatever it is that you do, I am going to be the best that I can be. And I'm going to go read out on some other things. I'm going to find some other stuff. You don't know how many Christian magazines, folks, are geared towards ministries? Things in ministry? You won't find them on the newsstand. They don't sell them there. But I can tell you a number of them. Outreach Magazine is one. All kinds of things about outreach in there. Another magazine I read, Rev Magazine. All kinds of stuff about church and different church ministries and things you can do. These are great areas of ideas. Others exist as well. Get out of there. Don't be content at what it is that you do. You say, Father God, whatever you have blessed me with, whatever you have given to me, I will be faithful. If I need to be here at 9.30, I'm being here at 9.15. If I need to be here at 9, I'm being here at 8.45. If I need to wear one tie, I'm wearing two. Now you go over. Don't look at how little you can do to get that thing done. Look at how much you can do. If you play an instrument, do vocals, practice them. Go home and do them. Take some lessons. Some of you folks like to play tambourines. How many of you have ever taken lessons on tambourines? Take some lessons. Get yourself good at it. Don't ask me about it. I would. I sometimes don't even know you're playing. I'm not trying to purposely tune you out, but I sometimes just don't hear things that are going on. I'm not telling you to, to not do it for that reason, but get, get, whatever it is you do, have a clapping. See, I know I'm not a good clapper. I know that. I don't try and start clapping. I don't try and get people to follow. I follow others. I follow Naz. Naz and Sharon, they got pretty good rhythm. I can follow them. Brother Jolly's not playing the drums. Might be able to follow him. You can't clap and play the drums at the same time, though, can you? But whatever it is that you're going to do, folks, put everything into it. Become the best at it that you can be. Father God, you have given me this. I'm not calling into question why you've given me this, why this is mine, why I'm supposed to do anything with it, but this is what you've given me, and I will be found faithful with what you have given to me. I will do my best with it, and I will put everything into it, because I am faithful to you. I will not constantly put it down to others. I will not speak ill of it to anyone. As far as anyone is concerned, if they hear me talk of the ministry that I do, I will always talk about it as if it is the most important thing going on in the church and that I give it my 100% my all. This is what I do. I will not be sarcastic when I hear your word preached or hear principles that are shared from your spirit to my spirit. I will not put that down. I will receive it. I will be respectful in those things. 
series by Brother Moore is phenomenal. I'm looking to try and get permission for him to, to let us put it up on our site so you can get it on the player. For those of you who are used to pulling it on that player, and so we'll, we'll try and get that up there. But be respectful of God. When God speaks, don't argue. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. When God says do something, do it. Stay with it. Do not detour. Do not be led astray. Be strong and of good courage, as the verse told us before. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do not turn to the right hand or to the left. But be strong and of good courage. Whatever it is that you have, use it for God. Put your all into it. Become the best that you can be at it. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the help that you give us. We want to be faithful with all that you have given us. We want to be faithful with the word that you have given to us. We want to be faithful with the knowledge and understanding that you have given to us. We want to be faithful with the duties and ministries and jobs that you have given us. We want to be faithful with the spouse that you've given us and the children that you've given us. Faithful with the house you have blessed us with. Faithful with the car that you have blessed us with. Whatever it is that's inside our house, we want to be faithful with it. Because patterns of faithfulness repeat themselves. We want to be faithful with all the things that we have. Treating them well. Being diligent in all things. Most of all, Father, to be respectful of every word that utters from your mouth to our ears. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.